Today we'd like to think about something that is really a very important thing of Christianity, and yet it's something that I don't think you hear preached on very often. Perhaps you noticed the name of the message this morning called Seeing the Unseen. Seeing the Unseen. Now that's a bit of a paradox, of course. And one of the places that beautifully illustrates this in the Bible is found in 2 Kings. I'd like to begin reading with verse 8, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel, and he took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. The man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Watch out that you pass not such a place, for there the Syrians are come down. Of course, the man of God was Elisha. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of and saved himself there not once nor twice. So I guess maybe three or four times. So Elisha was divinely told about what the movements of the king of Syria, their enemy, were and how to avoid them. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria, verse 11, was very troubled for this thing. And he called his servants and he said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? He figured one of them was informing, was a spy and not loyal. And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedchamber. <laughs> so that servant had it figured out what was really happening here. And he said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. So he's sending soldiers to capture Elisha, the one who tells. And it was told him, saying, Look, he is in Dothan. Therefore, he sent there horses and chariots and a large army. And they came by night, and they surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God was risen up early and gone out, look, an army surrounded the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, so here's Elisha's servant. Here's what he says. Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he saw the army of the Syrians and he was scared. An amazing answer. And he answered, don't be afraid. For they who are with us are more than they who be with them. Well, it sure didn't look like it. <laughs> there were two of them and some people in the city, but... Here was a Syrian army. Sure didn't look like they had the advantage in numbers. And Elisha prayed. This is an amazing prayer. And apparently Elisha could see the unseen host. 
he told his servant, Don't be afraid, for there be with us more than there be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I ask you, open his eyes that he may see. Elisha wanted the servant to see what he could see. He could see the unseen. He could see God's army. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. That's quite an amazing miracle that he was able to see what you really can't see. And look, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. When they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray you, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. And there's more that happens later here. But the point is, they were surrounded by the unseen, the unseen army of God. The power was on their side, not what seemed to be the case physically with all the soldiers that were enemies. Our eyes, too, like the young man, needs to be opened to unseen realities, things that are really there, but which are not visibly seen normally. In the Bible, we learn that angels help protect God's people. The angel of the Lord camps around about those who fear him, delivers them. Psalm 34, 7. One of the Christians of ancient times was named Jerome. He was quite a linguist and he ended up translating what is called the Vulgate into Latin, the common ordinary Latin that was used at that time in the early centuries there in Rome and elsewhere. Jerome, I understand, said we all have a guardian angel. That's a comforting thought, isn't it? And you've probably seen the artist's conception where you find an angel watching over a child or children, say crossing a stream or had some other dangerous thing. That's a beautiful thought that is presented in pictures that artists paint. There are other examples of angelic aid Genesis 19.11, a couple angels went to rescue Lot and others out of Sodom. You know about Sodom and Gomorrah, how they were destroyed by fire. And the people were so wicked in that city, they accosted Lot's house. He was taking care of the angels, being hospitable, not knowing they were angels and they wanted to violate him, a very wicked people. And the angel we learned there smote them with blindness. And they couldn't pursue their evil purpose. So angels do have power. Also in Acts 12, beginning in verse six, we see how an angel helped Apostle Peter. So here in Acts 12, 
12, beginning with verse 6, we read about that. And when Herod would have had him brought forth, apparently to execute Peter, you see he'd put him in jail, the same night Peter was sleeping. Instead of worrying about the coming execution, he, he slept like Jesus sleeping in the boat at the Sea of Galilee with the big storm. He trusted God. So he was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door guarded the prison. So he was pretty securely trapped there as a prisoner. And look, the angel of the Lord came on him, and a light shined in the prison. And he hit Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off from his hands. Of course, that shows angelic power too. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and bind on your sandals. And he did so. And he says to him, Throw your garment about you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he didn't know that it was true, that it was real, which was done by the angel, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second ward, there came, they came to an iron gate, which leads to the city, which opened to them all by itself. Now, we do that when we go into supermarkets a lot of times, doors open, but this was quite a different way. This was angelic power, no doubt. And out they went, and they passed on through one street. And right away the angel left him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people, the Jews. So he realized this is not a dream. <laughs> It's not a vision. This is really happening. <laughs> so it shows how God uses angels to help his people. Another thing that angels would do is bring messages. You remember how an angel talked to John the Baptist's father, the man that would be the father. He was an old man. His wife was old. He told him he was going to have a child. It would be John. And you can read about that in Luke chapter 1. Also, you can read in Luke about the message that Gabriel, the same angel, brought to Mary, a young teenage girl, that she would be the mother of the Messiah. She would be the mother of Jesus. So angels are used to bring messages at times. Now you might wonder, how powerful are angels? Well, turn with me to 2 Kings again, this time chapter 19. We find an amazing depiction of their power here. Chapter 19, beginning in verse 34. You see, the city was surrounded by tens of thousands of Assyrian soldiers. They wanted to conquer Jerusalem. Hezekiah was the king, and he trusted God. And God here promises, I will defend this city. 
to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And it happened that that very night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred fourscore and five thousand. How much is that? 185,000 soldiers. And when they rose up in the morning, look, they were all dead corpses. That is, of course, when the Israelites rose up and they looked out over the field, all these strewn with, with dead soldiers. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, and he went and he returned and lived at Nineveh. And it tells how his own couple of his sons conspired against him and killed him. <laughs> so we find angelic power is amazing. I was impressed last week as I was doing my ordinary daily Bible reading in the book of First Chronicles 2130. There was an angel with a drawn sword that David saw and also Ornan the Jebusite saw it. It was at his place. And David was terrified. It was an angel of judgment. David had done something that he should not have done. You can read about that. Joab, his leading general, warned him, don't do it, but he did it. And so many, many Israelites were slain because of that transgression. And here was an avenging angel that David was allowed to see. It was an angel with a drawn sword, and it scared him. So we get an idea of the power of angels with that and the earlier illustration that I mentioned. They were able to see the unseen. The unseen is real. The unseen is true. There's a world out there that we don't see with physical eyes. But you know, one very interesting concept. We learn about the unseen God by the seen things which he has created. We look around at God's creation, we can see that. And it speaks to us about the creator whom we can't see. First of all, turn with me, if you would, to Psalms 19, verse 1. We see how this is true with the heavens. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse shows his handiwork. Day to day utters speech, and night to night shows out knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So you look up at the night sky, or even the day as you see the sun, and at times the moon, and you see all the stars, they speak a truth. They tell us something. These things don't just happen by chance, as many people try to say. They tell us of the glory of God. They're somewhat glorious in the human sense anyway, but it points us to God himself and to his glory. 
and you don't have to speak English or Chinese or Spanish or anything. It's a universal language. It's a universal speech declaring the glory of God. And so I might add, they really have no excuse to deny the reality of God. In the New Testament, there's a beautiful verse that talks about this as well. It's in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. Let's actually go back to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because, this is how they hold the truth, that which may be known of God is made apparent to them because God has showed it to them. How? Because the invisible things of him, invisible things of God, are clearly seen from the creation of the world. What a paradox. God who's invisible and the invisible things of God, you can see them clearly since the world was formed, since the world was made. Goes on being understood by the things that are made. And that is to say his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. What's it saying? Very much what it says back there in Psalm 19. We look at the created things of God, including the stars and everything else, and it tells us something about the creator. It tells us something about God who is real, who is unseen, but real. It tells us a bit about him, and it tells a bit about his great power. And it goes on to say they're without excuse. So those who deny the existence of God have no excuse in doing so because of God's creation. The creation reveals things about the creator and his reality. And so his anger is upon them. Now for a Christian, there's a beautiful, beautiful verse, one of my favorites. It's the last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter four. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. Talking about Christians, it says, we look not at the things which are seen. That is the physical things. Of course, in one sense, we have to look at them. But we're looking at something else, really, in the deeper sense. We don't look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. <laughs> that is the unseen, the invisible. That's what we're looking at because the things which are seen are temporal, they're passing. But the things that are not seen, it says they are eternal. So we focus on the eternal, that which is not visible normally to the human naked eye. We focus on the unseen realities, the kind of thing that Elisha and his servants saw, that Peter experienced. that came in great judgment upon the Assyrians, that rescued the apostle. Revelation of the 
unseen by that which is seen. Now in 2 Corinthians, it also talks in chapter 10 and verse 4, says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, not earthly, but are strong through God. Particularly, I believe that's talking about prayer. Remember, Jesus was an intercessor and is an intercessor for us even today. And there's a passage which I believe really paints and exemplifies how this applies to Christian people. It's found in Colossians chapter 3. Hear what the first four verses tell us. Colossians 3. If you are then risen with Christ, I mean, if you're a Christian, you've been born again, you have the Holy Spirit, you are God's child, your sins are forgiven, you're promised eternal life, not only here, but hereafter. If then you're risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, we might add, the, the unseen things, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection, or better translate, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So it tells us that even though we see things physically, our minds are also to be set, and even more importantly, on things that are unseen, things that are above. And so you see how this fits right in with what we're talking about today. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Now it's not saying we don't have to also use our minds for things down here. Like when I drive here, I gotta pay attention what's going on on the road, and so we all do. When we do other things, we gotta deal with issues of this life. We gotta have eyes open to the things of the world. But it's saying we have a greater vision, a more important vision, and that is the eternal vision, the vision of things which are not seen. The things that really count, the things will not pass away, but things that will last forever and ever. That's what it's telling us here. For you are dead, verse 3, Colossians 3, meaning dead to sin, dead to selfishness, dead to yourself spiritually. And your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, he is going to come, then you shall also appear with him in glory. <laughs> what a beautiful, conquering, victorious thought. Just wonderful to know what God has promised to us. Back in Acts 7, we find a case of what is called the first martyr. Actually, Jesus, of course, was the first Christian martyr, you might say, but Stephen, his bold testimony before the Sanhedrin, the council, and how they became very, very angry at him. And it tells us that he saw Jesus standing, not sitting, standing as if to take action at the right hand of God. So Stephen, God's choice person at this point, as it were, saw the unseen. He actually was permitted to see Jesus Christ standing at God's right hand. He was in Christ's hands. 
And you remember then they took him out, they stoned him, and did he call down curses on the people that were doing this? No, he prayed for them, like Jesus did, prayed for those that were crucifying him. And you remember he also then said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And we talked about how when we die as a Christian, the spirit and the soul leave the body. And so his spirit left his body as they killed him and went to be with the Lord. That's what 2 Corinthians 5, 8 tells us. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now it's interesting, everybody, Christians and non-Christians someday must experience death unless the Lord returns first. There were a couple of early exceptions, Enoch and Elijah, but generally speaking, we all have to die even if we're Christians. We read about this back in the book of Ecclesiastes, beautiful ex expression of, of death and, and life in old age. Last chapter of Ecclesiastes, beginning in verse one. It's talking to, to young people actually, but it certainly relates to old people. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth when you're young, remember God. While the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh when you shall say, I have no pleasure in them. What's it talking about? It's talking about the infirmities, the debilities, the pain, the problem of old age. <laughs> the older we get, the more problems there seem often to develop. And then beautiful poetic form, it describes some of these problems of old age. While the sun or the light or the moon or the stars be not darkened. Often we have problem with eyesight, don't we? And the clouds return after the rain in the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble and the strong men shall bow themselves and the grinders cease. The grinders, we have a tooth problem. Sometimes our, our teeth go bad. <laughs> the grinders cease. We have a problem eating because they are few. A lot of them have fallen out or been taken out. And those that look out of the windows be darkened. So there's a problem of, of sight. And the doors shall be shut in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low. And he shall rise up at the voice of the bird. Sometimes you get older, you don't sleep as well all through the night. You wake up with e easy uh, little noises and maybe you wake up two or three times anyway or more. And all the daughters of music shall be brought low. And when they shall be afraid of that which is high, and fear shall be in the way, and the almond tree shall flourish, it's felt often they bud the earliest, and the grasshopper shall be a burden, and desire shall fail because man goes to his long home. So you see, that's what it's talking about, the long home when we're gonna leave this world. And the mourners go about the streets or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel be broken at the cistern. 
a poetic way of describing our exit from this world. So it says in verse 7, then, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was. But here's the important thing. And the spirit shall return to God who gave it. That's what happens when the Christian dies. Spirit leaves the body, goes to be with the Lord. Beautiful, comforting thought. Those who don't know the Lord, it's a sad situation that happens then. And so it comes to conclusion in verses 13 and 14 at the very end of the book. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Because God shall bring every work into judgment and every secret thing, whether it's good or whether it's bad. So what a beautiful thing. But the point here is we all grow older unless we go first, but ultimately the spirit must leave the body and stand in judgment before God. And so the young person is encouraged, remember now your creator while you're young, before all this difficult thing happens. <laughs> but most of us are older, but it means something to us too. It describes things and it encourages us. Trust the Lord and live for the Lord and live for that which will count forever and ever long after the physical has passed. You know, there's a lot of things that are done in answer to prayer. I have a quote. If the veil of the world's machinery were lifted off, how much we would find is done in answer to the prayers of God's children. How true that is. If we could only see the power that is exercised through prayer that God then answers. One of the very spiritual ministers in Scotland in the 1800s was a man named Robert Murray McShane. I have a couple quotes from him that are very significant. And by the way, I understood he did, died at 29 years of age. He had a bad heart. But he greatly influenced people for the Lord. He said, there is nothing like a calm look into the eternal world to teach us the emptiness of human praise, the sinfulness of self-seeking and vainglory, to teach us the preciousness of Christ who is called the tried stone. He also did some traveling abroad I like what he said, every step I take and every new country I see makes me feel more that there is nothing real, nothing true, but what is everlasting. And yes, as we said before, we as Christians look at the things that are not seen. We focus our mind on the eternal realities and on God, who is revealed through his creation and, we might add, through his written word. What a wonderful God we have.
but a loving Savior came and died for us, died for our sins, rose from the dead, helps us and prays for us every day, I believe. We all need it. <laughs> We're grateful. I've, in closing, I would just throw in here that I've been recently very impressed. Colossians chapter 2, end of verse 7 for Christians, it said we should be abounding therein in thanksgiving. Our lives should be abounding in thanksgiving. Not only should we be thankful, but it should be thing, something that overflows our gratitude to God and all his wonderful blessings for us. And so I'd encourage us, let's live for that which is unseen. Let's live for God and the things that last throughout eternity. Lord, thank you for the revelations of your word. Thank you for the revelation through the stars and the sun and the moon, the skies and other created things small as well as large. What a miracle physical world in which we live. But even more important, what a miracle unseen world that lasts forever that is about us. Help us, Lord, to have eyes to see, to focus on that true and eternal world. May we now commit ourselves to you May we reaffirm our faith in the Lord Jesus. May we decide with strong determination to live out our lives serving him and doing his will. Thank you. Help us to abound in thanksgiving. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen.